Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneers Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fit for the Future, a Pioneers Post podcast created and co-hosted with our partners at Buzzagod Accountants. My name is Tim West, and this is my co-host, Eddie Finch. Hello. This is Fit for the Future, where the Buzzacott and Pioneers Post teams will meet some of the stars of social enterprise and mission-driven businesses and explore what it means to build a healthy, resilient, sustainable organisation that's able to do good and well at the same time. Our guests for this episode of the podcast are Callum McDonald, who's Development Manager at Point and Sandwich Trust. Hi, Callum. Hello. Good to see you. And also, we're really pleased to welcome Carol Somerville, Chief Executive, and Joanne Ferguson, Finance Development Officer at Bethesda Hospice, a very warm welcome to you. Hello there. Hi there. Hi. Hi there. Now, the Fit for the Future podcast uh, was created by Pioneers Post in partnership with Buzzacott to meet some of the UK's leading social enterprises and explore their efforts to build a healthy, resilient and sustainable organisation that's able to do good and do well at the same time. And we're really pleased to welcome you three because actually you were guests at our SE100 Awards at which Point and Sandwick was the winner of our Social Business Champion Award. So congratulations on, on that, Callum. Uh, thanks very much. I was uh, surprised, but I was delighted, obviously, as well. Good. So we're just going to start off by asking you, Callum, I think, to start us off just briefly painting a picture of Point and Sandwick for us, perhaps starting actually with where you're based, because you're in a sort of rather rugged and windswept place on the northwest coast of Scotland. And I think it'd be really helpful just to place people geographically in the in the right place. A, well, it's a group of islands, basically, to the northwest of, um, of Scotland um, and... Um, Uh, known as the Outer Hebrides, I suppose, is the most recognisable name. Um, And if you carried on past the Outer Hebrides, you'd eventually reach Iceland. Um, So um, it's quite an extended group of islands that are about 130 miles long, I think, from from the top down to the bottom island, which I think is the distance from Birmingham to London. So it's quite stretched out. Um, They are, uh, because of the location, they're remote, Obviously, very rural um, and uh, very elemental, I would say. Um, and uh, it's got very strong uh, community traditions. People are needed to work together to survive in such um, a rough environment. Um, and uh, on the upside, of course, it's very, very beautiful uh, from an environmental and scenic uh, point of view. Um it's got um, primary industries such as uh, that you might expect, like fishing and fish farming. Um, crofting still goes on, which is kind of agricultural smallholding. There's also manufacturing industries up there, uh, including the famous Harris Tweed industry. Uh, Harris Tweed, as you know, is used for um, for clothing and accessories of various kinds. It's quite an upmarket kind of cloth. Um, there are other manufacturing um, items as well, like factories like uh, pharmaceuticals, seaweed, which is a quite a sophisticated industry these days. And there's just recently been a civilian spaceport uh, established in the islands to launch small satellites into space. So it's quite a varied um, mosaic of islands and of activities. Uh, but the islands all share the same problem of uh, being remote, rural, um, and and losing population, oh, you know, decade by decade. That's that's been the ongoing problem for much of the twentieth century, continues into this century, and uh, particularly for young people. We educate educate our people exceptionally well. There's excellent schools and so on, but it means that half of them go on to university, another twenty five percent go on to further education of one kind or another, which are course, the kind of statistics that governments aim to achieve elsewhere in the UK. Uh, But the consequence here is a lot of people go away for that higher education and further education. And then trying to get people to come back, uh, it's difficult, basically, because you need jobs, well-paying jobs to attract people back when they've got these kind of good qualifications. So that's the challenges we face. 
Um, and it's a, it's a community solidarity that helps us meet them. It's a community uh, strength that I think is the biggest attraction for people coming back as well. And of course, it's very windy up there. Now, I'm saying that on purpose because I, I want you to tell me why that's important for you. And, and really, it's the kind of, I guess it's the raison d'etre for, for Point and Sandwick, isn't it? So, or at least yes. maybe not the reason for being, but it's certainly the reason you can you can exist and you can continue with what you're doing. So tell us what Point and Sandwick now is, is actually all about. What do you do and what social environmental issues does the trust aim to solve as a result of what you do? Yes, well, it's always been one of the, the, the long-standing jokes on the islands. If you could turn scenery, wind and rain into money, then we'd be doing very, very well. So the scenery is being turned into money. Tourism is a growing industry. The rain is still a, a bit of, a, of an issue. <laughs> um, but uh, wind, we're now turning into money as well. And uh, that became apparent to us when we started having uh, big corporates coming up, visiting the island and saying, oh, this looks like a nice site for a giant wind farm. So when we looked into it, um, we, we found that actually wind farms don't necessarily generate very many jobs. They tend to be like, you know, dams in the old days. You take a lot of jobs to build one, but once they're up and running, they tend to look after themselves. They don't have a lot of ancillary employment um, um, attached to them, uh, particularly nowadays, because a lot of the big wind farms you see they're not managed or controlled from the local areas which host these wind farms. They're managed and controlled from central databases, quite often not even in the same country. Hmm. And so when we looked at that, we, we, we thought, well, this is not actually going to be a jobs bonanza. Is there another way of drawing economic benefit from it? And then we looked around us, for example, so we could see that in other countries like Denmark, especially, a lot of the wind farms there were um, locally owned, cooperative owned, community owned or municipal owned. And in those, in those instances, they were able to hang on to the money that the wind farms make and then reinvest that money back into their localities, into their communities. And that's what generated jobs. And that's what made wind farms popular uh, in those kinds of countries. So, um, so we decided we, we, we should try to have a go at that um, on, you know, in the islands. Um, and there's been a number of wind farms that have uh, sprung up. I think there's about six or seven community wind farms now on the islands. Um, ours is the largest. Ours is the largest, actually, community-owned wind farm in the UK. Um, but it's been a very, very successful um development in terms of the economic benefit that has come into the islands. Um, the big corporate wind farm that was rootling around um, 15 years ago, uh, it's yet to put a spade in the ground. They're still hopeful that one day they'll get something, but uh, but so far it's the community wind farms that have been that have made all the running on the islands in terms of you know using renewable energy to benefit the local communities. Great. Eddie, I'm going to pass over to you now, and uh, maybe you'd like to take the conversation forward. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Well, I, I guess, Callum, the, the thing that interested us, we, we talk a lot in the, the sort of business model bit of an, analysing the, the, the enterprises when we're looking at them about resilience. And, and I think a lot of the business model you have is, is dependent on being able to get that power into the mainstream market and, and generate revenue from it. But you've you've had a bit of a a journey on that front. I know you had a setback with the, the cable uh, getting cut and, and that stopped your revenue for a while. But actually at the moment, because energy production is in a, a really sort of good place, you've, you've got surplus money to distribute. Maybe you could just talk us through how you've you've sort of ridden the waves, as it were, if you'll excuse the almost pun. Well, um, you know, wind farms are funny businesses because they're not like a normal business where you're trying to keep ahead of the market you know, hmm. year on year, trying to figure out what customers' tastes are and how they're changing or what you're, you know, the people you're selling your product to. Um, energy is is pretty stable. Everybody involved in energy production in a wind farm is pretty much doing the same thing, hmm. selling it to the same market and getting the same kind of price for it. 
they're not kind of, you know, you don't have to be particularly entrepreneurial to be in the wind farm business. You just have to persuade somebody with money to give you a lot of cash up front, because again, to use the, the analogy with, you know, building dams, uh, they're really kind of capital intensive in the first year when you're building the thing. But then after that, so long as you've got an off taker for your power, um, then you just let the thing more or less look after itself. Not entirely the case. You have sort of difficulties like we had when we got disconnected from the grid because the cable went down. But uh, but more or less, that's what you happen. What you what what happens in a wind farm, and uh, it doesn't matter if it's a community one or a commercial one. That's the same kind of business models. What they call project finance. You finance the thing. Um, you borrow the money against the value of the wind farm you're building. It's like a mortgage on a house. It's not against your, your income. But to be able to survive and to pay back, you have to try to de-risk your business as much as possible. That's good for you as a community. It's good for the bank that's lent you a lot of money. In our case, the lent is almost £14 million. So that's a lot of money for a bank to give you up front when you've got no business record and you're sinking it into a hole in the ground and putting in turbines. So you've got to de-risk that for the bank, and that's good for the community as well. You don't want that kind of risky business as a community. So, uh, And the thing about borrowing that much money up front from, from, from say, a, a, a bank like, like we did is that they take then a very close interest in your business. In your business. They sit on your shoulder and they guide and advise you all the way along. And if you start spending money on silly things, then they will sort of have a quiet word with you. So it's very, it's almost like having a business mentor, having a lender who's got that much money at stake. Um, and um, so in de-risking it, uh, one of the things we do is um, try to build up very good relations with the business, um, with the private sector, contractors that we have to use in order to to build, maintain, and operate a wind farm. Uh, and we do that by signing long-term contracts uh, with them uh, rather than trying to renew our contracts every two or three years and trying to find a cheaper product. We try to find somebody we can work with over a long term, we can build up a relationship of trust with, um, and that includes your insurance company as well, because you try to insure against uh, de-risk as much as possible. You try to insure against uh, loss of income due to things like a cable going down, for example. So, so by de-risking, you try to get um, you try to ensure that when something like that happens, and our cable went down for a full eleven months when we weren't earning anything, um, that you've got. Uh, a good relationship with your insurer that they're going to step in and help you there. Uh, and that's that's what happened in, with us. We got an insurance payment, payment of a million pounds, and that's what allowed us to survive over that 11 months. Um, so, so, so that's basically the approach. You, 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 you try to have a good relationship with your contractors and you try to de-risk as much as possible. That sounds very solid and, and long term. And and those those contractors do they, they they run the wind farm itself for you as well as um, keeping it maintained? Yes, yeah. And, and again, this is standard operating practice in the wind yeah. farm industry. I mean, if you get the likes of EDF, for example, who want to build a giant wind farm, they will contract out people to do the planning. They will pr- contract out people to do the environmental studies. Uh, quite often, when they get the wind farms operating, they will cr- contract out people to buy the power as well as use it for their own purposes as well. Um, so it's standard operating. And when they need technical support and advice, they will contract that out as well. So we, you just follow the same business model as the private mm. sector does, as the big corporates do. Um and uh, you might say that we might, you know, it would be more difficult for us because we don't have the pooling power of a big corporate. But um, private sector companies, whether they're technical support people, environmental uh, analysis people, lawyers that do all your paperwork, uh, accountancy firms, we use the same ones that they use. We have to because they have to be people who are sufficiently qualified and uh, big enough to give comfort to the banks 
um, that we're using the right kind of people. So we use the same the same outfits, uh, but instead of finding us as a nuisance because we're so small, uh, they're delighted to be able to work with us because uh, you know they like they like what we do. They like the community nature of the business. They like the fact that all the profit uh, goes back into the community, and it gives them. You know, it gives them an incentive to work for us. So we find the private sector partners we've got um, bend over backwards to help, to work with us and to help us, uh, and they get more out of it than they do from a lot of the normal business they do. Who are trying to win a zero sum game with them most of the time, I'd imagine. But and and in your case, then the, I, and that is one of the really special bits about all, all social businesses. But in yours, it, it comes through in spades. The, the the community side, the distribution of the profits, do, that that that's done very much in partnership with local organisations uh, and involvement of the community. How how do you get that sort of keeping tabs on the business side and the community side? How do they marry together? What, what What's in the middle that, that looks after both bits? <laughs> um, well, I suppose it's the people <laughs> that, mm. that, that marry them all together. I mean, I concentrate on uh, developing the business, building the wind farm, running the wind farm. Um, and then I gifted all the profit into a community-owned trust. And the community-owned trust then has a board that decides how that money is going to be invested and spent in the community. Uh, obviously, because I've been there since the very beginning, I have a bit of a say in that as well. And likewise, um, you know, the board of the trust don't let me go away and start doing crazy blue sky stuff without pulling me back if necessary. So, you know, that's just a, 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 a common sense understanding and relationship between all everybody who's involved in the, in the business side and the trust side. That we that we just work with each other, we learn from each other, and um, the trust works on the basis that we've never, you know, since the trust got set up in two thousand and five, it took us ten years to build the wind farm, but it never in that time nor since have we ever had a divisive uh, kind of situation, and we've never had to take a vote to determine any decision either by the trust or by the business, and uh, and that's very important. Uh, spirit, spirit to maintain uh, because, you know, one of the drawbacks of being a community business, there's not very many drawbacks, I have to say, but one of them is that if you do have, you know, divisions of opinion and they become quite trenchant, then it can spill over into community, you know, people can get upset and take that upset, upset away back into their domestic lives and their private lives. And you don't want to you know, you try to do everything you can to avoid that kind of situation in a community. There's a couple of community wind farms where we've seen that happen, and it's not a good thing. And so, um, so that is that is a very kind of fundamental principle of the way we we operate. I mean, wind farms can be quite emotive things, can't they, for the communities that are involved? Did it did it take you a while to persuade the community to get behind the whole idea in the first place? Um, no, um, it was, um, you know, wind farms are emotive because they don't generally bring bring a lot of benefit back into the communities that mm. are expected to see them out their windows, basically. They're expected to host them. Uh, mm. You know, it's not like um, a factory where you can see all the jobs. It's not even like a call centre where you can also see all the jobs. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, the wind farm is built and then it's, you know, it can be built in the Hebrides and run from Germany. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, our wind farm and all the other wind, community wind farms together, they would, they they create now about eight jobs. There's eight people who are employed to maintain and keep the turbines going um, over seven uh, wind farm sites. We, you know, we share that these people. And yeah. even if we were two or three times the size, it wouldn't make any difference um, in terms of the number of jobs created. So, Unless you capture that income, then you will get a lot of animosity. As I say, the big wind farm project that was um, trying to get established in the islands—that's uh, that the first time it put in a planning application, it got rejected. It then subsequently got accepted, but they're still having difficulty in making progress with their project. Um, and in fact, something like sixty percent of private sector corporate wind farm 
uh, applications get rejected. So when you think of the development, you know, and, and typically they take about 10 years to develop. So if you work at something for 10 years and then it gets rejected, that's a lot of lost yeah. money, wasted money. Community wind farms, I don't know a single one that's been rejected at planning. I mean, you won't even you won't even progress, push it to planning if you don't have community support. So there's a huge difference in that aspect. In a way, community wind farms are a much more cost-effective way of developing a wind farm because you you got that support from from the outset. Um, and um, as I say, to maintain it, you just try to move by consensus as much as possible and try to see, try to think of sensible things that you can invest your money in that people see the benefit of, like Bethesda, for example. I mean, Bethesda, I mean, um, they will tell you is, you know, it's, it's a pillar of the community in the Western Isles. It's one of the, you know, the, the great um, um, bonding organizations and institutions in uh, the Western Isles. Um, so so that, that's the kind of stuff we want to, want to support and to, to keep on supporting. Well, that seems like a really good time in that case to introduce Carol and Joanne again, just to get you to give us an idea of Bethesda, what you do there, and actually how how the environment there. So Callum was telling us at the very beginning about um, you know the challenges of the island and you know the fact that young people maybe are not able to find jobs there, and there's a perhaps an aging population, but also I guess the geography means that there are particular challenges as well around care, etc. So tell us about Bethesda and what you do and the challenges that you're you're facing at the moment. Uh, as Callum says, um, when he's talking about the, the challenges they have, we, we had challenges when we were set up. So Bethesda started um, in, we actually started in 1985 and the organisation um, was supposed to be a nursing home because there was a, a, a geriatric hospital that was over, you know, overflowing, and there was no nowhere for people to go. So one of the ministers um, decided that he would start a, a nursing home, or he, he, with his presbytery, that he wanted to start a nursing home. And at that time, I was working in the health board with um, the chief area nursing officer, and she joined with them, and they wanted it. She wanted a hospice as well as a nursing home, so that they would um, have somewhere for people to have specialist palliative care and not have to go to the mainland to to do you know to have that care. Most people wouldn't travel to the mainland; they would either stay in their own home or the local hospital. So that was that uh, committee was set up in 1985. I came home in 87 and, and joined that then. So there was um, in nine they they took. Probably the first the first few years they were trying to raise seven hundred thousand at the time, so the first, after the first couple of years people started to get a bit fed up. So they raised four hundred thousand, and they started building uh, Bethesda then. So um, it was Bethesda Nursing Home and Hospice, and they built thirteen. So there was supposed to be twenty beds in the nursing home and four beds in the hospice, and at that time. The, the population, which was probably about 20,000 uh, of, of uh, you know, of Lewis and Harris, and it was deemed two beds for the hospice would be sufficient, but two beds wasn't viable, so it was four beds they decided to do, so, um, and 20 beds in the nursing home. And um, the following year, so they did that, so we opened on the 9th of March 1992, and we had uh, 13 beds in the nursing home and four beds in the hospice. The following year, with very little funds and a great leap of faith, um, they started building the second part. So we added another um, nine beds, to do my sums. So there's 21 beds in the nursing home and four beds in the hospice. Very, we always say Bethesda was built by the community for the community because without the support, the support of the community, we wouldn't be here. And that continues to this day. And as part of that community, you know, when Point and Sandwich first, first approached us, um, we have been really kind of hand in hand with them all along, involved with them as they, you know, we had looked to, to see if we could have a wind, uh, a turbine, but we're right in the middle of Stornoway and that wasn't possible. So we kind of joined with them, but left them to do all the work so that we would benefit, hopefully. And we did. And we, we set up a, a contract with them. 
uh, a contract in really in the loosest terms because there was never going to be any doubt in their minds that they were going to support the hospice. You know, we have to raise such a huge amount every year, you know, 400,000, um, that even though the hospice we fundraise for, the nursing home we charge a fee, we have a contract with the local authority and that's, that's different. So we have the two areas that we have to look after. Um, in 2010, uh, we had to expand the building because we had multiple bedded areas. So we needed to have single rooms for everybody. So if that was completed in 2010. That was a, a, a joint effort with the community as well. We had a, a building appeal for that and that cost us over two million pounds. So we have a, a beautiful building. Um, the hospice, the hospice we continue to fundraise for. Uh, when we when we did the extension and, and finished it in 2010, we were always told, if you make beds, make more, make provision for more. So there was an additional floor with the capacity for nine additional rooms. And we fought very hard for five years to get the revenue funding. Capital funding wasn't a huge problem, but revenue funding is. So we, after five years, the local authority agreed to fund these additional nine beds so within four months, we had these beds up and running, staffed, um, furnished, staffed, and um, people in the beds within four months, which was a huge effort because, as you say, the, the young ones um, tend to leave the island. A lot of them come back, as Callum will probably say to you. There's a little bit of a pull here. The islands always draw us back. I came back myself. I was only away for about five years. Um, Sometimes you think, well, I'd like to go away again, but this pull, this thing pulls you back. Um, a beautiful island um, that we call home, and a lot do come back. But we do have the challenges of employment, and we have an aging population, hence why the, the nursing home is just as important as the hospice. So um, we have a new residential home that's recently opened, so our respite beds will become long-term care beds. But, the, you know, going back to the hospice, the hospice is really important so that people don't have to go away to receive specialist palliative care. You know, they come in for symptom control, pain control, and it's really important that people come to us possibly before their end of life so that they get to know us and then they choose maybe to come back in so they won't be a burden to their families. They come back in to receive end of life care. And, you know, um, hospice care is, is holistic care. So we look after the families um, as well as as well as the patients. It's very important to us that they're well cared for. Um, when somebody's very unwell, you personally, you might forget to eat. You forget to to exist. You're there just for your, your loved one. So we try to take them. We take them in as part of the Bethesda family until and, and when they need us. They're part of our family. And then um, until they don't need us. But it's really important that they have the support when somebody is at end of life. Um, should somebody not have that support, it can impact on themselves, on their own families, their own lives, their working lives. Um, we, we can't change what's going to happen, but we can support the people when they're receiving, when their loved ones are receiving end of life care. And we, we, we talk about a good death, not in a bad way, but in, in a, a good death means that somebody may pass away very peacefully. Um, it's easier if you've had a bereavement, you know that. It's easier to accept that you're losing a loved one or, or that you've lost a loved one. If it is a, a good death and you feel that they had a very peaceful death, just when that doesn't happen, it impacts on people's uh, mental health and mental well-being. And that itself can be a challenge for our NHS. So we try to work hand in hand with the NHS, providing the care in the hospice. They do fund, they, they used to fund 50% of the care under Scottish government laws, but that's changed. They now only fund about 25% of the care. Um, so it means we have to raise, you know, up to over £400,000 a year. Um, from that, the, the money point and Sandwich give us, that's a huge start every year for our fundraising efforts. Um, and that's 50,000 a year, isn't it? Am I right? 55,000 a year. 55 a year, right. So yeah. that's really important to us that, that 
you know, we, we continue to receive that money. Um, you know, the other ways we have funding the shop, um, you know, we have our own hospice shop as well. Yeah. Um, but but it's getting, you know, nowadays it's getting more difficult um, to to raise the funds to keep the hospice open. Um, it's, it's free. The hospice is free to patients and their families. Um, we don't ask for any money. But the donations we receive, we see we receive donations from uh, funeral collections, from uh, people who want to come back and help us, so they they have fundraising events. So we, you know, that reflects the care that's that's given to the patients and their families in the hospice. So we always we always feel that you know, if we don't provide the care, we're not going to receive the support. But we were put here for the community, and you know, we we one of the. Um, you know, we're built by the community for the community, and yeah. and we're, the community is, you know, at the we're at the heart of the community. So, um, are you the only hospice on the islands as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah and the actually, only nursing home, or no? There's two nursing homes. There's our nursing mm-hmm. home, and there's another one. But a nursing home and hospice together is very unique in Scotland. Um, we haven't had, you know, they haven't had the two. There's no hospices on any of the other islands, on Orkney or Shetland or any of the other islands. Um, the Southern Isles have a, a, a bed in the, in the local hospital um, so to provide palliative care. But uh, the hospice itself, the nearest hospice would be Inverness. Uh, they're very well supported because they ha- they have such a massive area that it's, it's Highlands and Islands. Well, the, the Islands, if they needed anybody from it, but Highland does in Elgin, near a massive part of Scotland, the Highlands, and you know they 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 are well supported. They have a number of shops. Um, so although we we're small, but I would say the care that's provided in the hospice is is if not better than certainly matches the care in the large hospices on, on the mainland. Um, we have people who come back to us day after day, year after year to, to donate money in memory of their loved one that's passed away. Um, this, you know, the people come in, they comment on how relaxing it is in here, how they, they suddenly feel, I mean, I wish I had written a book for all the times people would tell me the stories of when they came in. But, you know, one of the people that said to me, he says, I just lay on the bed and all my troubles drifted away. So it's one, it's wonderful to, to feel that you provide that care. And the, the, the funding, I, I mean, I'm imagining from some of my own clients that run hospices, it, it's very hand to mouth. So having that big proportion of your annual fundraising target already in the bag, as it were, must must make life a lot easier for you. It does. I mean, Joanne, Joanne's um, really, she's been with us for a year um, and probably feels that she's been put in the thick of it because it's a huge amount to raise. Um, so I let her, she's a finance development officer, so... Um, yeah, I think we're just, it is, it's the £55,000 a year from Point and Sandwich, you know, that we're guaranteed. It's a huge... Um, it's a huge relief in one sense to know that at least that is coming into us when we have to raise over 400,000 every year. And as you can imagine, on a small, relatively small island location, trying to raise that much money is a huge effort. People, the people here are very, very generous. People are so, so kind. The community are so kind, but it's difficult to rely on people especially with the cost of living going up for everybody at the moment you don't want to be relying on people who can barely afford to keep themselves going to ask them and expect them to keep us going as well so and I think when people see like the organizations that Point and Sandrick do contribute to it does make a huge difference to them that they can see that this money is going straight back into the community and into places like Bethesda, you know, who need such a huge amount of money every year. Hmm. So without that £55,000 every year, you know, it would be, it keeps, it keeps me going thinking, well, at least that's coming in. So now I need to go and try and get more money on top of that. But at least I know that's all started for the year every year. So it is, it's a huge, um, it's, it's a huge um, amount of our money, com- you know, compared to the other donations we get. That 55000 is, you know, a significant uh, lump sum towards everything. 
uh, like Carol said, capital funding, you know, it, it's more readily available, but the revenue funding for keeping things going on a day-to-day -day basis, it's really, really difficult to get any kind of, you know, revenue funding normally. And I think someone said, we were at a seminar recently and someone did say, you know, that they're, you know, the, the grant making trusts, they're kind of re revisiting how they give out their grants because so many organizations are needing revenue funding and it's just not available the same way capital funding is. So. Yeah, that's something that, that has, has been happening recently. And I guess across the whole of the, the island, though, the, the feeling that that the whole of the income belongs to the community or the certainly uh, the, the, after you've paid the bank whatever you need to pay the bank every year belongs to the community is uh, a real strength isn't it because it is coming not not from some outside foundation or something it's it's part of the the, the community's resources that you're getting a share of yes i mean that, that that's a whole fundamental mm. merit of community-owned energy and renewables yeah. um and it, it's something that should be in my view much much more widely adopted uh, across the UK than than we've got at the moment. Uh, to me, it's a non-brainer to you know to use renewable resources to generate income for your own community and to own and operate these resources because we've shown it can be done. You know, it's not it's not something that requires anybody with any previous business background to do. Um, any particular entrepreneurial flair, um, it is um, it is to me um, much easier than say running a community shop or mm. running a community pub, which you see people taking on. These are much more awkward and difficult businesses than ours. Ours has got bigger numbers, but because it's de-risked in the way that I was trying to explain, yeah. it is an easier business to to manage and to operate. And um, you're you're then able to return that that money back into the host community, which otherwise will will get peanuts really if it's a corporate wind farm that, that gets uh, set up. Um, and as I said, you know it should be done in more places in the UK. It's less than one percent of the wind turbines you see driving around the UK are community owned. Whereas if you go to Denmark, it's something like 60%. So that's a huge, huge difference. Um, and, um, um, and and try, you know, the, the big problem in trying to get, the biggest problem we faced in trying to get our scheme developed was basically what you might call the credibility gap, the skepticism that energy businesses could be operated and run by a community at any kind of size or scale. You know, the kind of uh, knee-jerk reaction you get from civil servants, politicians, and so on, policymakers, is that, you know, community businesses are nice things to have and to give a wee pat on the head to, but uh, they give you a warm, fussy feeling, but they don't really move the needle in terms of our energy goals, for example. But um, as Denmark shows, they can move the needle. You can have the majority of your energy businesses owned and run by the community or a cooperative or a municipality. Um, and when you do that, all that money comes back into the into the community. And and in terms of in terms of energy security, um, presumably, I mean that there's issues like storage that need to be worked around eventually, but in terms of energy security for the community, it really can help with that too. Uh, absolutely. It, it helps for the community in terms of energy security. It helps for the country in terms of energy security to have your energy assets owned and operated by by local people rather than, hmm. I mean, I would say, I guess about 80% of the wind farm assets in the UK are foreign owned. So, um, so yeah, from a, from a macro sense of energy security and from a micro sense, um, it you know community ownership, local ownership really does help. It's one of the things we you know we're, we're developing on the next wave of projects. We're hoping to, and one of them is, that we're currently operating on is to have a, a grid supporting battery hmm. um, to be uh, to be developed in the islands that can help sustain the local grid, but also help sustain uh, the mainland grid as well. 
if we'd had this kind of battery when the cable went down, all the wind farms would have been able to keep on producing. So we're now going to develop uh, a battery. We've got a site, um, and we're uh, now dis- we've got permission from Ofgem um, to develop the project. It'll cost about as much as our wind farm did, about another 13, 14 million pounds. So they're expensive bits of kit. Uh, in terms of you know, the megawatt size, which is what they talk about in, in the energy industry, is twice the size of our battery. So it's a big piece of kit, um, but it will support and maintain uh, the local grid and provide the kind of exactly the kind of energy security that, that you refer to. Um, and, um, and there's no aspect of renewable energy that can't be developed by a community. Um, hydrogen is at the cutting edge, and you don't want to be involved in uh, tricky technology that may not work, not unless somebody else is paying for it. Um, but uh, but at you know at some point that will become a more technologically reliable um, um, asset, and when it does, there's no reason why that can't be developed and uh, used locally as well. In fact. One of the biggest costs you've got in hydrogen is uh, storage and transport of hydrogen. So it makes sense to manufacture it locally using your own local green energy power uh, and use it locally as much as possible as well. So batteries, hydrogen, wind farms, all of these things can be developed, owned, operated by the community sector. And uh, I'm just waiting for somebody to get this message (laughs) and to start doing it. Well, that's a massive win, and and I guess the rain might even get monetized then as well. But yeah, that's uh, yeah, you, yeah, absolutely. You comes, need water comes full circle. Water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. And and in terms of the the sort of capital, yeah, you had to raise a, a big chunk of money to start with, and that'll be paid off over a, a, a period. But but presumably, wind farms need to be rebuilt from time to time. Yeah. And is is there a long term sort of model where the the profits, some of the profits, are going? being stuffed away to, to pay for that eventually or will you will you have to go back out and borrow again or how, how will that work yes yeah, so our average kind of turnover is about three million a year i would say our mm. gross our net income will be about nine hundred thousand, averaging it some years more some years less uh, obviously we didn't make any money at all when the cable was down this year because mm. of high energy prices we've made a lot more money twice what we would normally make uh, probably over two million net uh, so some of that will be sensibly set aside for avoiding things like future cable outages. Some mm. of these things will be used to to pay down the debt. Although, you know, uh, we, we've sort of um, shaped the debt repayment over a fifteen year period, rather than trying to front load it in in, in at the start, mm. because we want people to start benefiting from from the wind farm straight away. Um, and um, and you can always reshape it. You, you know, you, it's like any borrowing, even your mortgage. You borrow it, and then you can refinance it later when interest rates are better, and so on. You can play games, uh, tunes like that, with with your financing as well. Um, and um, and how much goes uh, to the community each each year then, Callum? Out of those, on average, about nine hundred thousand. Oh, so it all goes out to the community, right? Uh, yeah. Yes, it does. And, well, most of it goes out to the community. We do try to sort of, in the first two or three years, uh, we didn't keep any money aside, but now we're trying to sort of build up some resilience, a kind of resilience budget that will allow the trust, like any charity, has to have a certain percentage of its annual expected expenditure to be be, um, protected, have a reserve fund. So we we are now in a position where, for the first time, we're able to start doing that. Um, but we, you know, we do want to um, put money back into the community as much as we can. So as well as supporting Bethesda, because it's, it's got such a, a big impact upon uh, upon people's lives, and I don't think there's a family in the island that hasn't got a relative or a friend or in some way, you know, involved and supported and helped by Bethesda. Uh, we try to support other things. We, we've got a big environmental scene at the moment we've planted we're, we're, you know a lot i mentioned that the crofts on the islands that used to be used for 
for subsistence agriculture, potatoes and vegetables and so on. A lot of them are no longer used, so we're using them now to plant native trees. And that's been very enthusiastically received by you know the different villages because um, the, the, the islands, if you visit them, you'll see they need a few more trees. And so we've planted about 150,000 over the last three or four years. We've got a target of a, of a million to reach by 2030. And that's going to have a, a transforming effect across the islands in all the villages when you see native trees and the kind of difference to the biodiversity that that brings to those villages. It'll make it'll make the villages, um, you know, uh, even nicer than they are at the moment, more attractive. So that's being that's being very enthusiastically taken up. Uh, we do a range of things. We did a lot. We used a lot of money in the past year, of course, to help with uh, the COVID crisis. Uh, we're providing meals to to uh, vulnerable people, um, which we never thought we'd be doing. It would be a meals on wheels service, but we we ended up doing it in the COVID crisis. Uh, the energy crisis. We provided support for people in energy poverty, um, and we've got. Because we're doing a lot of work in the community on insulation and so on, we've got a good idea on who's who's in the most need, um, and uh, but the doors are open as well for for other people to come in, and so we're able to provide grants of up to one and a half thousand pounds to help households. Now, you know, if you're in energy poverty, two hundred pounds doesn't really make a big difference uh, but one and a half thousand pounds can really make a profound difference to people so we're being targeted about about that kind of support but it's having a huge impact uh, it's had a big impact in the island over the past i would say six months as we've got the, the scheme up and running um, and we do lots of other things helping lots of of uh, countless groups locally um, and we've got big projects as well capital projects we try to Restore and develop local assets, which we're restoring a Victorian mill, which is, is part of the cultural heritage of uh, of the community. It's also a, it'll become a visitor attraction. Uh, we're developing a coastal path, a walking path around the whole district, um, which again will be a good thing, asset for the community in health terms, leisure terms, but also will be uh, part of the tourist visitor infrastructure as well. So we're trying to to use the money to develop the community assets. We don't, we have two rules. One, we don't give out individual grants of money to people just like a dividend, as it were, for example. Um, it has to be attached to some kind of need or interest, community interest that's, that's being supported. Um, and we don't uh, duplicate what lo- local government or central government should be doing. Um, you know, we don't we don't fill a gap that they're failing to fill that they should be filling themselves. So we don't. Uh, so what we do is things like Bethesda, which relies a lot on community support. We try to help that kind of thing and give it, give it a long term as, as with Bethesda. In, because of the nature of our wind farm, we can make a commitment for 10, 20, 25 years. And that's the kind of commitment we've done with Bethesda, for example. Great. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you and fascinating to hear the the relationship between the rather odd relationship it seems initially doesn't it between a a hospice and a wind wind farm but actually both organizations that are embedded in the local community by the local community for the local community and and actually when you explain it come together very naturally so it's been really interesting hearing your your stories and hearing how everything fits together um and also thank you so much for for painting a picture of, of stored away in the aisles um, for us and for all of our, our listeners. Um, uh, it just remains for me to say thank you for, um, for taking part in our, in our podcast. And um, I mean, it, maybe just quickly a, a last word or a last thought from you, Callum, and then from Carol and Joanne very quickly, if you'd like to, if there's a one message. Uh, I'll let Carol and Joanne go first. Um, yeah, I think we would just like to say thank you very much to Point and Sandwick. Thank you for that, um, the funding that we get every year from you, which we need and which we do rely on. And I think it does, like you were saying, it does have such a huge beneficial effect on the whole community when they see such a big project 
coming back and being reinvested into the community themselves so that everybody in the community gets that benefit. So thank you. I'd just like to say that um, we've had a, a long relationship with Point and Sandwich Trust and I hope that continues into the future. Um, the Thesta and our community depend on organisations like yourselves and I think you, you're very successful. It's a very well-run organisation and uh, thank you. You know, and I, I hope you, you do continue, as I said, on the night of your uh, award, that you go, continue to go on for success, you know, very, every success for the future. Wishing you. Thanks. Thanks very much. And that's, that's um, um, I, I, I know that Bethesda will flourish as well and we'll be there to support it all the way through. Um, and my final word would be simply to anybody listening to this, nodding their heads and saying, oh, that sounds good. That's a lot of money. It'll be quite nice to have in the community. Look around you at what the energy assets in your neighbourhoods, your areas are. Does it have to be a wind farm? It could be a solar farm, for example. In lots of places in England, that would be a more valuable thing. There is no reason why they can't be built, owned, operated by the communities. And there's plenty of opportunities as well coming up, not just for brand new ones, but all the existing wind farms. I, I mentioned that we've got a a lifespan of about 25 years, a lot of them will be coming up for renewal. They require planning consents. Uh, there's no reason why communities can't start a dialogue with their local authorities now to say that when these sites come up for renewal, why not look at the community option? Don't just rubber stamp another 25 years of seeing the money that's made by these wind farms or these solar farms disappear over the horizon. So that would be my <laughs> my final word would just be to say anybody who's liked the, what they've heard, you know, think about doing it in your own areas. I think that's such a massively good point and very passionately made. And you have persuaded me, especially because the numbers are so much bigger, that it does sound easier than doing a shop or a pub too. So, yeah. Definitely, definitely. On that note, Callum, thank you and goodbye to you. Thank you, thanks very much. And goodbye, Carol and Joanne. Thanks very much. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. And we hope to see you up north soon. Thanks. And my co-host, Eddie, great to have you on as usual. And goodbye to you. Well, thanks, Tim, and see you again soon. Brilliant. And it's a goodbye from me. And thank you to everyone for joining the call. It's been, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. This has been Fit for the Future with me, Eddie Finch. And me, Tim West. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and please feel free to share your thoughts via email at hello at pioneerspost.com or on Twitter at Pioneers Post and at Buzzercott. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.